Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is technology entrepreneur, investor and philanthropist, and very impressive too, it's Ewan Kirk, or I should say Dr. Ewan Kirk. After 13 years at Goldman Sachs, where he led a European team of mathematicians, scientists and statisticians using technology to make data-driven investment decisions, Ewan co-founded Cantab Capital Partners, a science-driven investment manager. Over the past 30 years, Ewan's been involved in multiple ventures to commercialise and apply STEM research, that's science, technology, engineering and mathematics, if you didn't know, across business, philanthropy and academia. And in 2007, Ewan and his wife, Dr. Patricia Turner, co-founded the Turner Kirk Trust, providing funds to STEM, education and conservation causes in the UK and the developing world. And we'll be hearing about some of the excellent projects they've supported, which include Solar Aid's Lighter Village initiative, providing solar lights to a rural Malawi village with a mission to light up all of rural Africa by 2030 and a global fellowship aimed at protecting biodiversity. I mean, this is the thing. Sometimes I meet these wonderful people and I go, wow, where do I start? I'm going to start here. Firstly, it's lovely to see you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I read this about you. I love the whole concept of discovery, the language of maths, the puzzles in maths. Looking back at your academic life, Ewan, you did applied maths at Cambridge, which followed your first degree, which was natural philosophy and astronomy. Yeah, that's great. And then you did a PhD in general relativity. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, most people I meet, they may have a degree and there's that path. They may have not had a degree and they go that path. Mm-hmm. Not many people I meet have three. You're greedy. Gre- yeah, greedy well, to study. And I also read that you were thinking about academia, but again, you said, I didn't think I was good enough. Tell me about all this stuff that's, that you're naturally obviously predisposed to and tell me how that's informed your decisions in your business life. Well, the, the thing about maths is as you go through your career, it's just about when do you fail? Okay, so some people fail at maths at GCSE, right? It's just too hard or it just doesn't work for the brain. Some people it's at a degree. For me, I got to the end of my PhD and I realised, okay, I now know everything there is to know about this tiny subdivisional sliver of not just not just general relativity as a tiny thing but this tiny bit of general relativity but i knew i was never going to be a researcher because i worked with some really smart people much much smarter than me at doing maths but that doesn't mean that you can't continue to learn right and it's just where do you get that satisfaction for learning from so for me, it was, I sort of transitioned, I guess, from being a pure mathematician, or it's actually an implied mathematician, I think, strictly, and decided to teach myself to program, and programming computers is something that I really like doing. It's another puzzle-solving thing. And you were very young when you founded your first business. Yes. Entrepreneurship is one of those things. It's a bit like driving a car or sex, Everyone thinks they're better than average at it, right? <laughs> so I thought, right, you know, I'll, I'll start a business. And a friend and I had written a piece of software. And back in the day, you could just work, just sell it, like put adverts in magazines. And we made 
the princely sum of £10,000 selling this software. And I have to say, I thought, okay, this is something that I think I can probably do. It was much, much harder back in the 80s to start a business. I mean, nowadays, with a PowerPoint presentation, you can go around the literally thousands of VCs in London and raise yourself a couple of million quid to start a company because entrepreneurship's a lot easier, I mm. think, or at least starting a company is. But even though I kind of put that on hold for 15 years or so, I really liked that concept of running something yourself, having... It's sort of having the autocratic control, you know, <laughs> you just have to do what I say. Um, when I was running Cantab, I really liked that control aspect. And people once asked me, they'd, they'd say, um, you know, so what's the best and worst bits of running your own firm? And I said, the best bit is you don't have a boss. And the worst bit is you don't have a boss. Because that's hard, right? It's hard when you don't have somebody else telling you what to do. So you set your first business up, then you end up in the world of Goldman Sachs yeah. for quite a while, which again, it's the equivalent of being in Bain and BCG in the consulting world, mm -hmm. but there you are in a, in a, you know, in a financial services behemoth, a bank of, yeah. of great repute. What was that like and what moved you to go, I've, I'm done with this and I need some space to think? Okay. I mean, one of the things about Goldman is almost everyone there is incredibly good at their job. To go back to the entrepreneurial thing, it has a real, or it had a real entrepreneurial flavor to it because it was a partnership when I joined. And so you join a business. In my case, it was the energy business, the oil trading business, which is run by one or two partners. And it's like a small 50 person firm. And Goldman was just, or was just an agglomeration of small 50 person firms, everyone being really entrepreneurial. I remember once I was sitting, coming up with derivatives and you know options and swaps and structures for energy traders and energy companies and sovereigns and gold deals and so on. And I came up with this thing, which, to be perfectly honest, was a bit of toxic waste. I mean, it was just a terrible, terrible deal for the client and probably for us. And so I showed it to the partner who ran the business. Now, part of the thing was we all sat on the trading desk. The partner sat next to me on the desk, you know, and I was sort of the junior quant. And I said, um, what do you think about this? And he looked at it and we went through it and he said, now, just remember that it's my money you're playing with here. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Would you do this if this was your money? And I went, no. He said, just remember that. Okay. Mm. And... And actually, it was a really good lesson because sometimes in public companies, which are not partnerships, you get slightly removed from the shareholders. The fact that it's not, yeah, no longer your money. But of course, the business yeah. went public in around 99 or 2000, it did, yeah. didn't yeah. it? And, and, and did that, and then you left in 2005. Well, yeah, so I, I made it to partner in 2000. I was a managing director in 1998. So I, I was what was called a post-IPO partner, mm. which was a difference of a lot of money. Yeah. Um, however, that's that's good. But, but that culture of entrepreneurialism, firstly, yeah. obviously, you saw it there, and people may not think about organizations in that way. They often think yeah. about, well, you set your own thing up and you're an entrepreneur, but of course, it's not like that. Yeah. As a post-IPO partner mm. yeah. and all that, did it retain some of its entrepreneurialism? Did it continue that thing, or was it, it obliterated? No, it did 
It did for a while. Now, I haven't been in Goldman now for well, the best part of 20 years, so I can't really talk about the, the culture now. But those few years yeah, afterwards... Those, it was absolutely that. The reason why I left was... Partly it was a little bit about when you're at Goldman or when, you know, when it was a partnership, being a partner was the goal. That was the thing you really wanted. And you just worked really hard at it. And you, Lloyd Blankfein used to say, you do the job of partner for two years before you actually make it. You know, you get patted on the back. And you think you've made it. And then suddenly you realize you are at the bottom of a 300-person greasy pole. All of the people on that greasy pole are trying to make it to the management committee or whatever. And I just got a bit tired of that. I mean, I enjoyed it and I, I loved the job. And... If you sort of cut me through the middle like a piece of seaside rock, I probably say Goldman Sachs. I think it's a great. I, I think it's a great organisation. Does amazing things, but that reality, that greasy pole, the politics of it, probably not for you at that moment. Which is then, yeah. And we're going to pause there because the next instalment get things to me. They get kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Much more coming up. Not that that <laughs> bit wasn't interesting as well because it's, it's revealing about as you as, as you said that dichotomy between you think it's not a, an entrepreneurial place and it is and all yeah. those other things we've just discussed. Much more coming up from my fabulous guest that's you and kirk he'll be here for the duration but right now we're going to hear a taster from the michigan academy digital sessions they can be found on all the major podcast platforms michigan directors tom grogan and Anne rose talk about developments in the world of blockchain and the key opportunities and threats affecting businesses looking to implement blockchain platforms the michigan academy digital sessions conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today what would you say to any organisation who's looking to implement blockchain technology today? I think the first piece of advice I'd give hasn't changed over the last sort of four or five years. It's, it's verify that you've got a use case and that blockchain has has meaningful value proposition for your business or your organisation. The second thing is make smart platform decisions early and design choices that, that have a view and an eye to to progress and development in this space, uh, ensuring interoperability and longevity. Uh, the developments we've seen over the last 12, 18 months have been extraordinary, and I, I think we we all expect that to continue. So, so organisations want to be sure that what they're building today maintains relevance and, and efficacy in, in 12, 18 months' time. I'd seek to identify uh, the key stakeholders. I think so often I've lost track of the the number of times I've spoken to clients, public sector and private sector, who have asked the question, could the technology do this? Could the uh, technology do that? (laughs) The answer is almost always yes, the technology can do most things. We tend to find that that the problems aren't uh, tech-based, they're people-based and they're stakeholder-based. I think it's incredibly important that very, very early on, organisations identify who are the key important stakeholders that are going to be involved with their implementation and bring them in and and actually sort of empower them by involving them in the the design thinking process. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can delight in all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker, you know the drill, just ask it to play Jazz Shapers. And you should be rewarded with a taster of our recent shows. But back to today's guest, technology entrepreneur, investor and philanthropist, it's Ewan Kirk. 
So you finish at Goldman Sachs. Yep. I'm not going to cut you open um, because I don't have the equipment <laughs> with me, but let's assume you are still in there, embedded in your in your physical DNA. Mm. I, I read that you were listening, I think, to maybe a podcast, another podcast. You took some time out yep. and you reflected and you came up with a mantra. You went, I'm going to do my own thing, but if I do mm -hmm. my own thing, there's going to be four kind of rules which underpin it. If you don't remember the rules, I can tell you them, but you tell, I think you I, probably I, do. I, I can, but these are really important, I, I think, in I, terms I, of looking at people thinking about a business and what they want to do next with their lives. Yeah. Just run through them for so, me. So I, so I took a year off uh, after Goldman and bought more guitars, bought a motorcycle and then sold it because it's uh, cliche to buy a motorcycle when you retire from Goldman. Um, <laughs> went to the gym every day. We took our kids out of school and we traveled around the world for four months, which was absolutely lovely. And I didn't think at all about anything, right? I'd had a year off. And then beginning of 2006, I sort of sat down and I thought, right, what do I want to do? And I had four rules, right? And the first rule was I would never commute again because I commuted. I live in Cambridge and I commuted down to London or... I suppose also commuted around the world, but I'd commuted a lot and it's miserable and grim. Second one was I would only do things I like. So I kind of like maths. I mean, that's sort of obvious from my, my CV, I guess. I like computer programming. Uh, I sort of like the markets. I mean, the markets are a complicated and not well-solved problem. And... I also quite like selling, mm. I, you know, being being in the in the pitch thing. I mean, it's a little bit of a performative art when you're trying to sell things. So I quite like doing that. So that was my second rule. I only do things I really liked. The third rule was it had to be something that was hard. The phrase that's used a lot is on the edge of failure. So if you can do something that's on the edge of failure, if you don't fail, that feels like really good, right? It's, it's a nice thing to do. And the last thing was I wouldn't hire anybody I didn't like. And even though people in, particularly, you know, in tech or in finance talk about it being a talent war, you know, you've just, you know, it's really hard to find people. It generally is, but if somebody comes in and they are brilliant but annoying, you can probably just wait. And then somebody who's brilliant and not annoying will come down the line mm. at some point. Um, and so I kind of stuck to that and I was really pleased to do that. It meant the culture in the firm was really good. And the firm, the firm that we're talking about here is Cantab Capital Partners, yeah. which you were involved in directly in a, in a kind of obviously from setting it up all, all the, the way, way through, through to yeah. like the, the, you know, a couple of years ago. A hedge fund that uses computer models to drive investment decisions, essentially quant. Yes, quant, quant. decisions. Uh, if people have watched Billions, it's it's sort of that, but the real version of it, yeah, which is... I, I, I know, I know. I, 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 no, say. well, I, I don't watch Billions because it's just a little bit too close to the bone, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. It's not that it's not accurate, it's actually too <laughs> it's accurate. Too okay. accurate. No, but, but, I mean, that's a... You, you know, uh, firsthand I've seen those kind of businesses evolve, and that's mm -hmm. notoriously difficult to, to, to beat the market, to mm -hmm. prove that the numbers are beating the market. In just a very, in, in your own simple language, summarise 13 years of how you made it successful. Why did it work, apart from your four rules, of course? Apart from my four rules. The, well, the four rules would have worked if it was a coffee shop. Absolutely. Right? Um, I, I always sort of step away from the word quant a little bit, okay. because, just because it's, you know, it's a contraction of quantitative, and if you use a spreadsheet to work out the price-earnings ratio of a company, that's quant, right? There's, there's a separate thing here which is systematic. So the rules of trading are embedded in code, for want of a better, a better description. So to really boil it down, what do systematic 
funds systematic traders do, you sort of take lots of data in the market and in a sophisticated way you work out what has worked in the past and then you do that in the future. And, and that's it. Right. And that's it. And there you go. If only it was that, 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 just okay. that. We would all we would all have set it up. But there you go. You and Kurt did do it. He set up and, and successfully exited Cantac Capital Partners. And we'll be talking much more about the next part of his journey after this. It's Etta James with Tell Mama. Etta James, Tell Mama. There's lots of energy around the music day on Jazz Shapers, which is fabulous. You and Kirk's my business shaper, and we've been talking about being systematic and I love your the simplest pithiest version I've ever heard of 13 <laughs> years of a of a business doing rather well and selling for many hundreds of millions of pounds by the way which I think is public anyway so I'm not going to embarrass you yeah. um, it, extraordinary the the industry I believe back in 2020 gave you the accolade of lifetime contribution the winner of lifetime contribution to the hedge fund industry a source very close to you, you, mm. told told this person, me, that you had actually at one point bought a book, Hedge Funds for Dummies. That is actually correct, yes. When I, when I left... I what, say this only to help reassure people that just because you don't know the, 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 the ins and outs of an industry doesn't mean you can't come in and do something disruptive and special. That, that is true. I mean, obviously, I, I understood markets, and most importantly, in these kind of funds, it's about technology, and I really understand technology. We wrote literally millions of lines of code to, to make this all happen. But I really had no idea what the structure, format, or what you needed for a fund, right? People say, oh, I'm going to start a hedge fund, or I'm going to start a venture fund. Well, there's all this stuff you've got to do, like have administrators and prime brokers and some Cayman Island partnership and blah, 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 know your client, all that stuff. I had no idea how to do that. But um, what that says is to me, Ewan, and I guess now now in your capacity as a, uh, you're on the board at BA Systems, you're an exec director looking at their technology investments. You're an executive chair of Cardio, I think. Yeah. Um, you're involved in Deep Tech Labs and you're the chair over there, which yeah. is, which is a, this Cambridge-based accelerator. Your whole mantra in life is now... I imagine spotting the yous, or not you directly, but mm -hmm. people that have got a good idea, that have real passion and, and knowledge, but that don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the industry because you prove the rule that you don't need to know that bit, you can learn that bit. That's, is, that, is that fair? That's, that's true. I mean, it's always... It's really hard to teach somebody to be smart, right? you kind of got to be smart. And what do you mean by smart? Just a Clever, intelligent, quick at solving problems... That that stuff is that stuff's hard, right? But it's generally in an industry, those industry things are easy or not easy to learn, but they can be taught. So if I use deep technolabs as an example, what we do is we get deep technology companies at that sort of quite early stage. You know, they've they've maybe got some customers, they've definitely got the technology. But by definition, deep technology companies are run by scientists who, quite rightly, haven't spent their time learning to be an entrepreneur or learning to be a lawyer or learning to be something. They've just been scientists. And our job is to turn them into entrepreneurs. And that's a lot easier job than taking a random entrepreneur and trying to turn them into a biochemist, right? You can't do that. So you can teach people. And I, when I was starting the firm back in the mid-2000s, a lot of people gave me advice and help. Right, you know, I'd, I'd phone up people and go, I've got no idea what to do, <laughs> how do I do this? And people would say, oh, you need to go and talk to this person or have you thought about doing that or don't do this, do that? 
And so I do have this sort of semi-informal program where I pay it forward. So, you know, I, I get loads of people sending me pitch decks for fintech businesses or they want to start funds or, you know, and they'll be, for want of a better word, kids, right, who just got a good idea. And I'm quite happy to spend an hour with somebody saying, think about doing that. Don't do this. That is wrong, but this is good. You need to think about pitching it this way or that way. And that pay it forward thing, I think, is, is quite good, right? You know, I, I, I did well out of people being nice to me, so might as well be nice to people in the future. You're going to get a lot of calls after this. Oh, oh no. no. That's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. And good emails. Really, and, big, and big ideas with, with fantastic total addressable markets. Don't worry. That's fine. Okay, That's right. Yeah. I, I like those. Uh, we'll have our final <laughs> chat with my guest there, Ewan Kirk, and we've got some Van Morrison for you as well. That's all in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Ewan Kirk is my business shaper just for a few more minutes. You talked about paying it forward, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned how you reach out and how people you know, will then come and say, yeah. here's what I'm thinking, and you'll be very honest with their, about their ideas. The, the Turner Kirk Trust mm-hmm. and all the good things that you do, extraordinary things that you do, is that just, and you take this in, in the way it's meant to be, if you didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. how would you help people I mean, what I mean by that is yep. it's, it's a phenomenal privilege which you take seriously that you have, mm-hmm. you have been very successful and now you want to give back. And yep. I can feel it when you talk about the time you give. That's not about money. That's just about you mm-hmm. doing the right thing. I guess the question I really have is what does it feel like to be able to do these wonderful things and how do you approach it? Is it systematic in the same way that you have been systematic in your approach to business? It's very hard to be systematic, um, to be truly have a rules-based thing. But you can you can have certain rules that you think about a lot. So one thing I think about in the philanthropic uh, space is there are some problems which are just government-sized. Yeah, I've, I've got some money, but I don't have as much money as the US government or the UK government. And some things are a huge amount of money, which philanthropy is just not appropriate to do. There's that great phrase by, I think it's the German comedian Henning Venn, who says... In Germany, we don't do philanthropy. We pay taxes. And, I, and, and that, that I kind of think is important because there are some things like ensuring that our children get educated correctly, which is not a charitable thing. It's a government thing. It's a societal size thing. And, you know, we're not the Bill Gates Foundation. We don't have that much money, right? So there are some things like solving malaria, which are completely out, outside our reach. So what you have to do is pick things which can be catalyzed by smaller donations, things that are, are difficult to fund. I mean, one of the things that we, one of the, the mantras we have is permission to fail. So a lot of charities, they're so desperate to show their donors that they've had impact. You know, you gave us £100 or £1,000 or a million pounds, and we did this with it. So they have to go and do one thing with it and make sure that it's impact rather than experimenting. There's there's more than one way to solve a problem. And sometimes people end up in this kind of local minimum or local maximum of doing this, whereas if they could just jump out of that and try other things. So the, the Light of Village thing that we did, originally they didn't know how to distribute these lights. They could get the lights to Kinshasa, you know, obviously made in China, delivered to Kinshasa, not very expensive. How do you distribute them? 
And we said, well, just go and run five different experiments. And we don't care if all of them fail. Just go and find out. And that gets you into a situation where you are doing something which, if you've found the right way to solve the problem, it's much more sustainable and self-sustaining rather than... The problem with most philanthropy is you give a dollar and then the dollar gets spent and then it's gone. And there aren't enough philanthropic dollars around to mm. be able to solve big problems. What you want to do is give that dollar to either create a self-sustaining thing where, to use another example, we once funded a microloan bank in Malawi. So that involved putting up a certain amount of money, but then that money just keeps getting recycled into loans, right? And then so it's, you've sort of solved that problem in a way. But we're well aware of the fact that there are some problems which are just way too large. Just talking to you, and we're going to have to close off soon, so I'm, I'm trying to think about the big question for me is this, you, you, you sound incredibly level-headed when you speak about these quite big things mm -hmm. that you're doing, whether it's thinking about how you give money, mm -hmm. thinking about giving time, the, the serious job of being a non-exec over here, yep. the being a founder over there. Where's that level-headedness and that natural predisposition to solve problems come from for you, you? And that's the thing that I'm really kind of going, I wonder why he's like that. I'm not normally really level-headed. I mean, sometimes I'm a bit crazy. But, um, but generally, but you, but, see, you seem to see things quite calmly. I guess the question is, the noise of the world, mm, the complicated, yeah. is all around us. And there's a lot of chat about all sorts of yep. things. How do you keep the space to enable you to make good decisions? That's a really good question that I've never been asked before, and I don't really know the answer. I mean, it's just my, my natural approach to something is probably evidence-based. I mean, at least in a professional sense. You definitely want to know about the problem space, and you want to try and understand it. And it is the case that we all have biases, right? And, and my bias is towards that rationality. The rationality has kind of worked out pretty well for the human race over the past three and a half thousand years. I mean, you know, it's worked out well. Science has worked out well for us. So I like to at least approach a problem initially that way. I mean, obviously, I have my emotional biases too. And sometimes those come into play and I do stupid things, right? Everyone does. But I think at least initially, it is good to think about a problem. Don't just go off half-cocked and sort of fire around, you know, any old random stuff. I mean, that was something that we, we did in the trust. One part of the reason for doing the trust was to stop me doing stupid things that I kind of thought, I'd, you know, somebody would come and say, oh, we've got this, this philanthropic thing that we'd like you to do. And I go, oh, cool, look, here's some money. And, and that wasn't really a very clever way of approaching it because you waste a lot of money and waste a lot of effort, which is you know, the important thing. So, yeah, I, I like rationality. That makes perfect sense. An emotional question for you. Yeah. Thank you. Firstly, thank you for, for, for joining me today. It's been brilliant. Uh, the emotional question is, what's your song choice and why have you chosen that? So my song choice is Larry Carlton's Room 335. The reason I chose it is, I mean, apart from the fact I really like the song and it's great and all of those things. I'm a guitarist. I've been playing the guitar for 50 years. And I'm quite good, but not super good. A little bit like uh, my academic career. You know, I'm quite good. But... The reason I like this song is I tried to play it for about a month. The chord sequence is incredibly hard. It's, it just doesn't fit fingers very well. And then the lead lines are beautiful. And, you know, I'd play a couple of bars and learn that and then learn another one. 
And however much I tried, I couldn't do that one. And I can play a lot of stuff, but 335 is just both, it feels very simple, as your listeners will, will listen to it. It feels like a simple song, but in fact, there's so many layers going on and everything's really hard and complicated. And so I thought, well, you know, if, I must have listened to it over and over and over again for a month. And if I have to listen to it that much, then your listeners can listen to it too. Larry Carlton there with Room 335, the song choice of my business shaper today, Ewan Kirk. Systematic, that was the first thing he said that has really informed his success. Permission to fail, really important as a senior person, as an entrepreneur, to give people permission to fail. And finally, his approach to all problems, be evidence-based. It's good to think about the problem. Great stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.